One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm John McEnroe, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. first Grand Slam tournament of the year is here and we're in Melbourne ready to go. In this edition we'll be going through the Australian Open draw, I'll be changing my predictions, well it's my podcast I can do what I like, and we'll be speaking to the Bryan brothers about the time that they came to blows once after a match, all right here on the Tennis Podcast. Well, hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast. Here we are in Melbourne on the eve of the first Grand Slam tournament of the year. And I'm happy to say for once, Catherine and I, we do not have an ocean between us. We're sitting side by side here in Melbourne. The sun is not really shining. It's a bit overcast, but uh, I've been working on my tan for the last couple of days. And it's going to be lovely, isn't it, Catherine, here? It certainly is, yeah. The weather as it is at the moment, you could believe that we were in the UK, but um, I'm not going to complain because I know within a day or two it will be 35 degrees again. So You better not complain. You've been here for six weeks. Uh, Catherine's here working for Tennis Australia. I'm here to commentate for BBC Radio. If you are in the UK, you'll be able to hear live commentary on the evening sessions here. That's morning your time on 5 Live Sports Extra. And we'll be doing all of the, the various Andy Murray matches, of course, following Laura Robson and Heather Watson in detail as well. And also look out for a show called Tennis Breakfast on Sports Extra. Most mornings from here in Australia when we bring you interviews and features and live court action and commentary as well from 6am your time most mornings in the UK on Sports Extra. We are in for one heck of a fortnight, Catherine. It's Sunday afternoon here. We've had all of the big names already in for press conferences over the last couple of days we had Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic Andy Murray all speaking to the media it does seem as though everybody's had a good off season everybody's fresh and everybody's raring to go yeah from whatever angle you look at it from it's there's intrigue isn't there there's the Australian angle of Sam Stozer perhaps is an ex- exception to what you just said who she hasn't had a great off season or start to the season but expectations are naturally still high Leighton Hewitt's just had a, a an excellent time in Kuyong. You've got Bernard Tomic, who's won in Sydney, which is very exciting um, for the tournament. You, you want there to be home interest for, for a tournament to to really um, to really get off to a flyer. And then I, I think the, the intrigue level of the Australian Open is always... Because uh, uh, there's, there's just a slight element of the unknown, isn't there? That really anything could happen. Um, and, I, and I think that makes for just a little bit of spice. 
powder on the on the whole fortnight. Spice powder, absolutely. Yes, Catherine Whittaker there. Uh, um, we have our big Brian Brothers interview coming up a little bit later today. On the, on the point of the unknown that Catherine references there, I think it's a very valid point as well. I, I was interviewing earlier today uh, Thomas Johansson, who of course won this title in 2002, 11 years ago, out of nowhere. And I actually said to him, Thomas, you know, did you think when you started that tournament that you could win it? And he said, well... When I got into the second week, I thought I might. But, uh, you know, it's quite clear that it was a, as much of a surprise to him as it was to everybody else. And it'd be very surprising if that happened again, wouldn't it? Somebody else ranked sort of 16 in the world, that kind of ranking. You'd have to think it would be in this era where there are, uh, th- well, four, but this tournament, three players that are just so dominant and hard to get past. I mean, in 2002, that was sort of the transition year wasn't it where I know Sampras came back to win the US Open but he was certainly not at his peak then and and Hewitt was around but I, I, you'd have to to bet against it at, at, in this era but it can happen Peter Corder he's an Australian Open champion slightly out of the blue it it's it's not out of the question absolutely not and it's certainly certainly not out of the question for somebody Somebody like Asonga, he's obviously done it before. Somebody just a little bit unexpected. Uh, you and I have different definitions of unexpected, obviously. What do you mean? Well, for anybody that listened to last week's podcast, uh, will know that you think Juan Martín del Potro, Grand Slam champion, is, a, is an outsider. Is an Absolutely. Outsider. Uh, I I should uh, just I think we need to get a couple of things out the way just before we get on to um, uh, the draw here which we're going to discuss in a a little bit of detail and we're also going to hear your thoughts on Twitter that you've been sending in about your Australian open memories and some absolute crackers in there as well and then of course we'll have our interview with the Bryan brothers in which they talk about how they once had a fist fight in the back of a car and drew blood the mind boggles but before we get on to all that um Catherine hasn't stopped smiling since I've seen her today. And there is a very good reason for that. Uh, Her football team last night beat my football team, even though my football team was 2-0 up with eight minutes to go. And uh, then the opposition, Reading Football Club, scored three in eight minutes to beat West Bromwich Albion 3-2. Have your moment, Catherine. Gloat. Go on. I almost don't mind if we go down now because today has just been such a glorious day of smugness. All right, enough of that. Um, so uh, the other thing I wanted to get onto is the fact that um, we've obviously been making predictions uh, ahead of the Australian Open. I've changed mine, and uh, no, no, and no, you want to change yours? No, I have changed it has, mine. hasn't hasn't been authorised as of yet. Who's it? Oh, right. Well, I own the podcast, so I'll do whatever <laughs> I like. Um, now, the fact of the matter is that there, there is a good reason for this, uh, listeners, and, and I'm sure you're listening to to your iPads and your iPods and your computers and you're thinking David Law who do you think you are you know you give us all this rubbish about who you think is going to win and then you change your mind what's it all about well the fact of the matter is that I saw the draw and the draw states um, that Andy Murray would have to beat one Martin Del Potro in the quarterfinals potentially and we never know if they're going to get there Uh, Roger Federer in the semis followed by Djokovic in the final who can do that who can possibly do that, Catherine? Well, I think Andy Murray can do that. I mean, to, to, I don't think that's that extraordinary. To win a Grand Slam, you have to be at least two of the best players in the world. If not, th- I, I don't think that's... He's not going into a Grand Slam hoping for a, a kind draw. He's Djokovic hasn't got to do that. <sighs> 
Djokovic would have to beat... Um, I agree with you that Djokovic has got a slightly kinder draw. I would agree with you there. But I, th- I don't think... These top guys aren't looking at the draw thinking, oh, God, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping it opens up. For, I, they're thinking, well, I can beat anyone. So, And I think that is Andy Murray's mentality now. Okay, well, my view is now that uh, having initially thought that uh, Andy Murray would win the title, I now think that Novak Djokovic will win the title, having seen the draw. Uh, So there you are. I've changed my mind, and uh, feel free to give me some stick on Twitter. That's what we're here for. At Tennis Podcast is the address, and uh, I'll take your best shots. No problem at all. Let's have a little look at this draw. Hold on. You're predicting Djokovic. That's correct. That's what you're saying. Yeah, that's right. Well, I'm going to stick with Murray. Okay, Catherine Whitaker has spoken here on the Tennis Podcast. Now, looking at this draw, just to go through that um, that uh, Novak Djokovic section, starts off actually with quite a tricky first couple of matches, a couple of players that have real talent. Paul-Henri Mathieu in the first round, potentially Ryan Harrison in the second. That's not easy, is it? Yeah, poor old Ryan Harrison that draws a seed in the first or second round of every slam. You can't catch a break, can he? But I wouldn't want to play Paul-Henri Mathieu in the first round if I was Novak Djokovic very talented lots of lots of flair like most of the french players sort of feel like he never quite recovered from that i think we've discussed the 2002 davis cup final was it correct against Mikhail Eugenie when he was two he did a bit of a west brom that day didn't Steady. he two sets to love up and and totally blew it he you know much like West Brom, he was he was against a better a better player. Right, I think we'll call call it quits on this podcast. Uh, and then he might have to play against uh, Sam Querrey or Stanislas Vavrinka. Not easy in the next round. Thomas Burdich in the quarterfinals, always dangerous. And then David Ferrer potentially in the semis. Now I have to stress that all of these are, are only seedings that they would meet that he would meet if they got that far. I'm sure there will be upsets, but. I still maintain that he would probably be more pleased with Burdich and Federer, uh, for, sorry, Burdich and Ferrer as his quarter and semi, rather than Del Potro and Federer. I think you're probably right, but I don't think there's quite as much in it. I'd put I'd put Burdich and Del Potro pretty much on a par uh, in terms of, of of draws and who you'd rather who'd rather be drawn against. So I think I think the main difference is that he's not in Federer's half of the draw. But I, I don't think Murray's fearing Federer. I don't. I, you know, he he thinks. That's not my point. My point is, how much is there going to be left in the tank for Murray to play against Djokovic, who is the man on this planet that puts players through the ringer more than any other? How much is going to be left in the tank after he's gone best of five against Del Potro and then best of five against Federer? But hang on, I mean, if, if Djokovic has to play Ferrer in the semis, which is quite likely, yes, you would pick him to win, but you'd also pick that quite possibly to be a test of endurance. He's, you know, you, you, I would see it as unlikely for him to just roll him over. He, he could be out there for a good four hours, couldn't he, against David Ferrer? He's, he doesn't go anywhere easily. So endurance-wise, I, I don't know. I, I, I think you're possibly reading a bit too much into the into the draw Catherine's not having it absolutely not having it Um, the fact of the matter is of course that Andy Murray has put himself through a torturous regime in uh, Miami as I'm sure most of the players have and four weeks of non-stop training and some of our colleagues uh, from the British press went out there and had a go at doing it with him and uh, oh, they've not been looking their best this week I have to say Um, but uh, Roger Federer he has a match potentially in the third round an interesting one in the first round in fact against Benoit Paire isn't it Um, uh, which 
it is the the French player who's got so much uh, so much talent, um, but I think he's a little bit erratic. The interesting one for me is is the potentially third round matchup between Federer and Bernard Tomic who won Sydney last night and it was really starting to look the business and look the part. He looked like a he, he looked like he'd matured, didn't he? But uh it's it's funny here in Australia everybody's already talking about that match. It's already all all about Federer Federer Tomic even though it's two rounds away and a lot can happen and even though Tomic is an unseeded player, although I'd be very surprised if he didn't win through. He he looked impressive in Sydney, I have to say. But then we haven't seen him against uh, top ten competition. I, I know he beat Djokovic in the Hotman Cup in Perth, but I'm not setting too much store by by that result. So it remains to be seen whether he can produce that against a a, a player of real class. But it, it will be a, a popcorn match, as the Americans What on earth say. is one of those? Do, how, what, what's this sort of vernacular that's coming out of you? Uh, it, it's, it's vernacular that comes with, with inverted, inverted commas, because I'm aware that I can't pull that off, not being American. So. You also know that that expression really annoys me, don't you? Because every, do. yeah. every time I hear the, uh, our American colleagues say, oh, this is going to be a popcorn match... I have to get a definition of what one of those is. Uh, Caroline Wozniacki against Sabine Lizicki in the first round on the uh, the women's side is is a, a fascinating opening round encounter. I mean, again, talking to Thomas Johansson earlier, who worked with Caroline Wozniacki, you know, he he did stress that they'd been trying to make her more aggressive during his his reign, and I'm not convinced that that has actually started to happen yet, personally. There didn't seem to be a huge amount of evidence of it in in Sydney and and Brisbane, but then maybe I I do believe she's she's trying though. I mean, you do hear lots of accounts of people saying you know that that is her her aim. So it, it just highlights how how difficult it is to make that kind of change to to a, a game and a style of play that's obviously so deeply ingrained and. Uh, I mean, yeah. Talk about draws. I mean, that both of those girls. That is a that is a bum draw, isn't it? It's a bit unfair, isn't it? Who's going to win that? I think Lisicki. I'm going Wozniacki. Well, that's because you've picked her to reach a Grand Slam final. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so we're head to head again. Venus Williams could face uh, Maria Sharapova in round three. That's a bit of a corker. Yeah, talk about uh, Venus Williams is very much an unknown, isn't she? You'd, I think a lot of people would like to see her have a have a run somewhere, have a good result because her days must be must be numbered because um, of her age and you know obviously the trouble she's had in the past year or so. But she obviously is sticking around in the game for a reason, and she obviously thinks she's still got something left in her. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd like to see her to see her do well and and catch a few headlines here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, she's a credit to the sport, the way she's managing to, to battle through the illness that she's suffered over the last couple of years. And, uh, yeah, I hope that match comes off. I hope Venus can, can get through to play over and we can have a really big-time night session match between those two. That would be quite something. A popcorn match. Oh, one of those, yeah. Uh, popcorn match. Um, Australian Open memories. What's your favourite, Catherine? If you think back into the into the depths of your memories, yeah, absolutely. Just give us a little highlight. I think some of my best tennis watching memories come from the Australian Open. Australian Open night matches, watching them at eight a.m. in the morning at home. That's I don't know. There's something quite quite special about that, and I think I'm going to have two. 
seeing as you changed your prediction, Go on, you I'm going to have two memories. The first one is going to be 2002, the, the year you mentioned when Thomas Johansson won. And I remember Tim Hemman being the top seed left in the draw and losing to flipping to, um, Jonas Bjorkman. In Why the is this a good memory? Round. It's not a good memory. It's just a, it's just a very vivid memory, shall we say. Um, I think he was the 11th, number 11 seed and every seed above him got knocked out. And he must look at Thomas Johansson's name on that trophy and think, oh, God. Well, we'll find out because we're going to be featuring Tim Henman in the next few weeks here on the Tennis Podcast, an interview Catherine did with him, and she was very forceful with asking him about his regrets. Um, so what's your other one? My other one is the 2005 final. Uh, no, 2005 semi-final, Safin. And, I mean, the final was good as well, but Safin Federer... Uh, semi-final night match Safin saved was it one match point two match points yes he, he certainly did save a match point I remember it was Roger Federer hitting a through the leg shot which of course he's made famous in the last few years hasn't he with pulling some of them off but he went for one that night when he had match point didn't make it and lost the match gosh I hadn't actually remembered that that I'm going to catch that on YouTube later. I mean, when you're as old as me, you remember stuff. Um, your memories on Twitter have been flooding into us here on the Tennis Podcast. Let's hear a few of those. We've got uh, Dan in Glasgow, who also references the Tim against Greg Rosetsky match. Yeah, that yeah. match that you referenced there, Catherine, or that year that you, you referenced uh, when, when Henman won that match between Henman uh, uh, and Rosetsky and, and was the highest seed left in and then lost in the fourth round. Oh, we all remember that one. Uh, there is uh, Stuart in Edinburgh who remembers the Nadal versus Vadasco semi-final that cracker of a match in which Vadasco so nearly beat Nadal that was something else one of the most high octane matches I I think I can ever remember yeah another one that springs to mind now you've mentioned that is uh, when Tip Saravich so nearly beat Federer two two or three years ago it must have been perhaps a A little more 2008 I think it was 2008 wow doesn't feel that long ago but um that was a cracker. Was that two, two sets to love up, was he? Can't remember whether he was or not. I know it was five. I know it was uh, a really long fifth set as well. And it was the, I think it was the year that uh, Djokovic won the title, beat Federer in the semis, and then it became uh, clear after that that Federer was actually suffering from mononucleosis. And, he, and he's, he, he, by his standards, struggled a little bit that year. Yes, not to take anything away from Tipsarovic, but uh, but yes, it did emerge after the event, didn't it, that he was struggling a bit. I mean, probably the most significant injury or setback to Federer's career, that, because he just hasn't... I mean, one of the greatest things about him is how he has managed to remain so remarkably injury-free for a, for a, over a decade. I mean, that really... Yeah. Well, he was asked in his press conference yesterday about uh, his his record of, I think this is his 53rd consecutive Grand Slam appearance, and he's only three behind Wayne Ferreira, who holds the record at 56. Um, and he, he, he had some real pride in that, did Federer. Um, he also referenced, and this is fair play to him, he said, I've had some luck as well, to be quite honest, because you have to if you're going to stay injury-free for that long. David Shepherd, the Shepmeister, uh, from West Sussex in England uh, says that he remembers the Rafa versus Murray match in 2007 one of the matches of the tournament a sign of great things to come from both and a 2am finish I remember that one as well it was the first time I think we ever saw Murray hit out on all of his strokes and decide not to play the sort of cat and mouse counter-attacking game and just try and blitz his opponent 
Yes, I remember that. I remember him sort of revealing that that, that angled cross court backhand, which he was really hurting Nadal with. That sort of shot was an absolute revelation that night, and he, he I mean, he really could have could have done it. It wasn't just a a young upstart having a bit of a go at Nadal. He really was just inches away from that match. And God, they, that feels like ages ago now, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. You're getting old, Catherine. Uh, we've got Tom in Melbourne who remembers, uh, and I remember this one very well, Pete Sampras breaking down and crying in the 1995 uh, quarterfinals of the Australian against uh, Jim Courier. And he, and he was two sets to love down in that match, serving aces while tears were rolling down his cheeks. I mean, that's that was something I think we'll... Uh, We'll always remember he came back to win in five and got to the final that year, did Sampras. Um, we have David in Dortmund in Germany, uh, who remembers an extraordinary performance from Philipp Kohlschreiber of Germany, who hit 104 winners to defeat Andy Roddick in the third round in 2008. That backhand that night was just unbelievable. If he could produce that backhand in every match he played, he'd be a world beater, wouldn't he? It's a glory to behold, but uh, he, he must get that DVD out on an evening in at home, mustn't he? <laughs> yes, time. yes, I would. I'd play that on a loop, I think, if I was him. Uh, we got Rian, who... Uh, has uh, talked about Capriati winning her first Grand Slam title here uh, and also the, the incredible follow-up the year later when she played Martina Hingis in, in that ridiculous amount of heat and, and she was a set and fall of down, I think, and, and eventually came back to win. And, and that was the match largely credited for bringing in the heat rule that, that exists today because it was, it was frankly dangerous out there. Uh, I spoke, actually, believe it or not, to, to Martina Hingis today, an interview you'll be able to hear on BBC Radio over the next couple of days, um, and we'll also eventually have it on the tennis podcast as well. Um, we have uh, Rian uh, also referencing uh, Federer in absolute. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. 
Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Domination mode against Andy Roddick in 2007 in the semi-finals. And it's a one I remember as well quite, quite vividly because Roddick had pushed Federer in their previous match, I think in the, the World Tour Finals at the end of the previous year. And then he came in really believing he had a chance. He'd got Connors in his corner. He thought, this is it. I'm playing well. Watch out, Federer. And Federer just took him apart that night. Yeah, it was it. It was one six love set in there, wasn't there? And and yeah, that was it. Was brutal, wasn't it? To see a, a top player, as you say, going in thinking he had a re- real chance, being being made a fool of, really, on the court by by Federer, which he's done to so many great players over the years. But just he just never got his measure, did he, Roddick? Never. It's so nice to see him get that victory over him in Miami. Was it shortly before he retired? Because. Uh, it was it, Federer was somewhat of a blight on his career. Yeah, just a bit. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. But uh, he, he always—he never said a bad word against Federer. He always liked him, even regardless. Uh, Sam in uh, Reading is also referencing oh, did you the. Say yeah, uh, uh, he's referencing the Colshrober match as well. Sam says he's a Reading fan. Does he? Oh, good man, Sam. Oh, well, Sam. Happy days uh, for we're us. not talking about you anymore. Sorry. Uh, come back next week when you're a West Brom fan. Uh, we have Phil, who's. Uh, in the UK and, and I happen to know that Phil is a Spurs fan because he's always coming on Twitter and giving me a hard time uh, and he references a match at the Australian Open in 2005 the one that you referenced uh, Catherine uh, the Federer Safin match shot making doesn't get any better and I think we'd both agree with you on that um, Matthew in Chester re- regards the the match with Gasquet against Tip Saravich a few years ago which Gasquet won 6-3-6-3-6-1 and, and he just has always wanted to see Gasquet play at his full potential like that yeah, I think there's a few people in tennis, tennis purists, that would like to see to see Gasquet reach his potential. But he, he won in Doha, didn't he? So uh, he, he might be one to watch this. Yeah, night. I think we'll watch him with interest. Um, there's a name I'm going to mess up here, Catherine. Pedro Andres Campos. There you go. A, a Mexican living in North Carolina. Uh, remembers Martina Hingis making a gazillion finals in a row. In fact, it was six. But a gazillion sounds better. And she won the title, of course, three times in 1997, 98 and 99. Uh, Mario GPA uh, remembers Carlos Moya reaching the final uh, against Pete Sampras, 97. Yes, that was just when I was sort of really seriously getting into tennis. I do remember that. That was so. That was the year before. He would have been very. I think that was something I asked him about, wasn't it, when I interviewed him? And he spoke very interestingly about it. That he went into that match or into the tournament, not having really had much exposure to to being a, a player in the limelight, and and how much of a shock it it came to him. And uh, yeah, go back and get that on the um, in our archive because I remember him speaking 
Yeah, first episode, in fact, of the Tennis Podcast. Ah, yeah. Exclusive interview with Carlos Moya. Catherine did it. So go and have a listen to that. Uh, Phil Marshall uh, also talks about the Safin win over Federer. Says he lost a lot of money that day. Sorry about that, uh, Phil. But that's uh, that's what you get if you start betting, you know. Uh, Kate Stowell from Melbourne comes up with a with an interesting one. When Chanda Rubin played An- Arantxas Sanchez Vicario and the court flooded in the 1990s and they ended up dancing in the in the flood on the court. I do remember that, actually. It's on YouTube. Go and have a look at that. Uh, Ewan in Glasgow uh, talks about the Nadal-Federer final in 2009, an absolute epic display by the Spaniard against one of the best hardcore players ever. I don't think anybody will disagree with you here. Uh, Verity is in the UK and she says she skipped school to watch that final. Goodness oh, I'm with me. You, Verity. I, I, f- for a fortnight every year I would go into school late every, every... Catherine this is just disgraceful I never knew this sort of side of you existed but given that I ended up working in tennis you could sort of call it an education in its own right it's all you? warranted all those teachers out there who used to give her bad grades because she was coming in late I never said anything about bad grades well taking a leap there which that's was... what I heard uh, in fact I did exactly the same thing when uh, Jimmy Connors beat Aaron Crickstein in five sets in 1991 I think you were about four um, and uh, I decided not to go into college the next day because I'd had two hours sleep and uh, used a similar sort of excuse that uh, this is preparation for my future career and here I am. Don't do that though kids. Uh, you, you know, <laughs> Don't try this at home. No, make sure you do, do your homework uh, and then uh, wishing uh, this is still Verity, uh, she wishes she had skipped Friday instead to watch uh, Andy Murray against Novak Djokovic. I say you should have just skipped them both, frankly. That was my policy. You never know when you're going to miss a good match, so just just make sure you're available for all of them. Yeah, absolutely. Take your holidays during the tennis tournaments. Uh, Scott, finally, is an Australian in the UK, and he says his favourite memory was when it was on grass, Kuyong, just after Christmas, and he would have a holiday down at the beach house oh. in Australia, and he'd watch his tennis. What's he doing living in the UK, then, if that's his idea of a good time? Well, he's, he's going to change his change his mind, change his plans now. He's re, you know we've jogged his memory about how great it is out here. All right, I've just sort of thought of a quiz question for you now that you I'm going to put you on the spot now that you've mentioned Bring the Australian on. Open on the grass in Kuyong. Who is the only player to have won the Australian Open on grass and hard courts? Oh, that's got to be uh, Stefan Edberg. Oh, ouch! It's not Stefan Edberg. You're in the right era, obviously. Right, it's Ivan Lendl. It's not Ivan Lendl. Hold on a minute. They went to hard courts at what was then known as Flinders Park, which is now Melbourne Park. They went there in 1988. All right, don't impress with no, superfluous knowledge. No, I'm just jogging. I'm, biding my t- I'm basically trying to buy time here so that I can remember. Um, and Mats Verlander beat... Pat Cash in that 1988 final in five sets. So he won that one. Then I think it was, it was, it's, hold on, it's got to be Stefan Edberg or Ivan Lendl. It's not those two, it's got to be Verlander. It's Verlander. Yes! Come on. Third time lucky. Third guess. Come on, that was just going through the encyclopedia that is my tennis mind. You get one third of a point for that. Okay, thanks very much. Um, 
we have a bit of a plane going over. It's a helicopter as we look up into the uh, overcast skies here at Melbourne Park and watch a helicopter flying over. Um, And uh, we are going to be getting underway at the Australian Open tomorrow, Monday. It's going to be a fantastic day of tennis. Who's playing in the the matches tomorrow? I think Leighton Hewitt, isn't it, against uh, Janka Tipsarevich in the night session? Night session match. That is, yeah, we're all gearing up for a 4 a.m. finish, aren't we? In day session, we've got... um, I think Djokovic kicks off tomorrow in the day session, Sam Stozer and Maria Sharapova, isn't it, on Rod Laver. So, um Plenty to enjoy on the uh, on the, the schedule of play here at the Australian Open tomorrow. Let's hear now from the Bryan brothers in our exclusive interview. One of the greatest doubles teams of all time, Bob and Mike are twins. They've been on the tennis circuit for the past 15 years. They've won 83 doubles titles together, 83, including 12 Grand Slam titles. They've finished number one in the world on eight occasions. And as they told us, they have a great advantage, of course, because they've never needed to look for another partner. Yeah, it's, uh, it's probably the reason why we're so consistent is because uh, we have this loyalty to each other. We're, we're never going to look around the locker room for, for someone else if, if we're having a tough stretch, which we do. You know, all teams go through slumps, um, many slumps where, you know, someone's not playing well. No one's going to play well throughout the whole year. And uh, if, if you know that your brother is uh, not going to run and look for someone else and leave you, it makes you feel more confident. You know, we're always building. We've played thousands of matches together. And some of those teams that are, that are splitting up, I felt were on the cusp of doing something, something great. You know, Lindstedt to Cal were, were knocking on the door. Three Wimbledon finals in a row. I felt like this year was their best year ever. Um, but they're splitting up, and they're going to start over with someone else. You know, they're looking for some sort of magical partnership. Um, but it's all the same guys, just mixing and matching. And, uh, yeah, looking for that elusive Grand Slam title, I guess. Some of those, some of those teams uh, haven't done it. You know, they're getting to their mid-30s, and they, they think they can uh, make it happen with someone else. How much of that, might do you think, is, is because it's, you know, you've got to spend a lot of time t- with each other. Yeah. You as brothers, you can do that. Not everybody can. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's like dating someone for a few years. Some of these teams <laughs> just get sick of each other, practicing every day together for a few hours, eating meals, um, we're lucky we're, we're best friends and um, we're twins. We spend <laughs> every minute of the day almost together. Um, and somehow I'm not sick of this guy. You know, I, <laughs> it's weird. But um, I think just because we're so alike and we share the same interest and we play games on our iPhones together. And I don't know, but a lot of these teams just can't take it anymore. They're just fed up. And, and they, uh, as Bob said, they go searching for, for another guy that they, they can have meals with and <laughs> they're not yeah, sick I mean, of I think one thing is, you know, we have our tough losses just like anyone, but we we take a long plane flight back to, you know, home and we, we get it out. You know, we we get the venom out. We, we throw some Did you have a row? We throw yeah. some punches. You're we kidding call, me. You throw, throw, <laughs> we call each other everything in the book. We cuss at each other. Something that two, uh, you know, another team would, would never do. You know, two professionals would never say the stuff that we're, we're saying to each other. But uh, I think it clears the air. You know, it kind of cleanses the situation. You know, we're not going talking to other people behind uh, each other's backs saying, oh, he missed that shot on a match point. You know, what a choker. You know, we, we, when we talk, we talk to each other. We talk uh, very honestly. Say it to each other's faces. And, and uh, uh, sometimes it's not the, the best, but uh, it, I think it, it helps us last a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah, it clears any bitterness. And, um, you know, any kind of slump is usually cut. And uh, I don't know, we bounce back stronger because of that, I think. 
If you ever had one night where you just said, I'm not talking to you, that's it now, go to bed and then the next day, maybe, maybe you've got to make it up. We've had a, we've had a ton of, uh, of fights. Um, you know, a uh, big one it was in 2006, Wimbledon. We actually won the match and uh, we were in the backseat of a car and it was just punches, blood, there's everything. Yeah, and <laughs> somehow the, the driver stayed within the lanes, but the car was moving back and forth and we can carried it all the way into the house and he ended up uh, smashing my... $5,000 guitar and <laughs> but then we were having dinner uh, five minutes later which is uh, twins are weird man I don't know how to explain it but we can forget it and, and move on and we went on to win the tournament <laughs> it's a great insight how long are you guys going to be doing this for I me mean, you've been at the top for such a long time yeah how long how long can you keep it up how long do you want to keep it up I mean we're still having fun we have goals um, we hate to lose we like working hard and, um, you know, having seen that hard work pay off and holding up the trophy. That's really the greatest feeling, you know. We love the adrenaline and uh, going to the, these nice cities. And it's a great lifestyle. I mean, we have the best job in the world. So we want to do it until we're, you know, four more years is what we've we're talked sh- about. Yeah, we're Third. shooting for uh, Rio. I, th- I think we want to go out at the Olympics down in Brazil and, uh, you know, just put a cap on the career and then right off into the sunset. Right after that tournament, I think we'll uh, – We'll say we've had enough. We'll be 38, <laughs> and then we'll be sick of each other. <laughs> yeah. Any idea what you want to do afterwards? I don't know. Um, you know, Bob moved off to Miami, um, so he, he's on the East Coast. I'm still on the West Coast. Uh, we'll eventually probably end up on the same coast and uh, do something together. Uh, we've talked about, uh, you know, college coaching maybe. That, that sounds like a, a fun gig. Um uh, Bob, you've got a—I don't know—he's got business ventures with, with guys down in Miami. <laughs> I don't know. We'll stay in tennis some, <laughs> somehow. Um, maybe start an academy. Come, you know, do this radio show with you. Uh, who knows? <laughs> now you're talking. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll stay. We'll stay in this. Tennis is our life. You know, we have a tennis family. My dad still uh, does his speeches and stuff. We'll, we'll, be, we'll do some exhibitions, but uh, yeah, tennis is our is our life. We'll stay in it. Can I just get an idea uh, on your thoughts on the game of doubles and the way it's presented, given you've been in it for such a long time now. Is there anything doubles should have been doing differently over the last decade to present itself? Um, You know, it it helps for the doubles players to show their personalities on the court. Um, You know, fans... Fans want to have a good time, and, uh, you know, tennis is entertainment. And um, as, as long as the doubles players understand that and uh, interact, interact with the fans, um, p- put on a good show, then we're happy. You know, we try to give back, sign as many autographs as possible. I don't think a doubles player should ever blow off a fan. You know, stay there, f- sign sign until the last person, um, you know, has nothing left. Um, but, you know, I think all these teams out here are doing a great job. Um, you know, doubles is just they don't we don't get the TV time, um, so these players aren't really stars. You know, they're known in the in the tennis world, and you know, but no one's gonna know who uh, John Julian Roger is walking through an airport in in Miami. It's just because of the TV time. Um, the singles players are, you know, in front of that in front of that lens all day long, and thus they're stars, and people want to come see stars. So. Um, you know, if the doubles players can get uh, more exposure that way. But I don't see this trend really really changing anytime soon. Is it a shame that we're talking about 
doubles players as in as in an entity separate from singles players you know we've we've got Peter Fleming walking around here doing TV commentary he played both John McEnroe used to say yeah. I play both I'm a tennis player I play both disciplines I remember you beating Tim Henman at Queens mm-hmm. all, all those years ago what if there was a combined singles and doubles ranking 50-50 yeah that'd, you know? be, that'd be cool I mean um we let all the singles guys in the doubles draws um so yeah. they, they can use their ranking to get in doubles but the doubles guys can't use their ranking to get in the singles tournaments. That'd be cool to have, uh, you know, one population. Who knows if it would work? Um, we'd definitely have to start training a little differently. Um, How would you get on? Where do you think you'd be ranked? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think my lefty serve can go anywhere, especially on a grass court. You know, it, it's it's two different sports now. Um, you see the build of, of a doubles player. I mean, it's it's all about quick hands, uh, precise returns. Um, you know, higher first serve percentage. It's just different skills now. I mean, uh, singles and doubles back in the day in the 80s and, you know, early 90s was the same. There was a lot of serve and volley tennis. You know, you don't see serve and volley tennis in uh, singles anymore. So thus, the singles players, when they come play doubles, they're serving and staying back. The game looks completely different today than it did, um, you know, when John Mack and Johnny Mack and Peter Fleming were playing. It was easier on the body. It was less stress because you knew you could just go out there and play the exact same game. Not to say those guys weren't weren't awesome. I mean, Johnny Johnny Mac had most skillful doubles player of all time. But it's just two different sports now. You can't you can't ask Federer to go out and play a grueling singles match and then turn it around instead of getting a massage. Go out and play a doubles match where he's working on comp- different skills that aren't going to help him in his quarterfinal singles match. Um, it's just a tough ask for these uh, for these guys to, to turn it around and get on the doubles court and, and uh, take away from their recovery time. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know I don't know what the answer is, but uh, you know, doubles is a great part of the history of the game. It definitely should be utilized by the tournament directors. It's a people love it. Ninety percent of tennis players around the world play doubles. You know, it's it's a game where you can uh, interact with women. You can play mixed doubles. It's a fun part of the sport. And uh, we just we're just looking for a little more appreciation, and that's what we're doing is going around and trying to uh, you know preach the gospel. You and get that here, don't you? Yeah, exactly. we do. We we feel the really feel the love uh, here in London. You know, the fans are knowledgeable. They understand the history of the game, the doubles game, and we get that in the states, in Australia. That's where uh, I think doubles is at its strongest. Well, that was great, wasn't it? Listening to to Bob and Bob and Mike telling us how it is from their point of view, and they're great guys as well, aren't they? They've got time for everybody. They're always happy to do an interview, and um, and the level of success they've managed to generate for themselves as a, as a as a twin brother partnership that must be really something. Yeah, it's special to share something like that with your with your brother, your twin brother, and and uh, where would doubles be without them? That's the that's the question, isn't it? And I hope. I hope the game doesn't have to contemplate the answer to that for for quite some time. So doesn't sound like it, does it? I mean, they really do plan on getting through to the Olympics in in twenty. What is it? Sixteen. It's that. It's no reason why that isn't a, a realistic target because obviously longevity of doubles players is 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 a lot greater than than singles players. So I really hope they do, and I, I really hope they stay at the top until then because. You can hear that they're they're great guys. They're great for the sport, and um, doubles needs them, frankly. No, it really does, and they'll be here, uh, of course, as well. They've just won the title in Sydney last week, and they'll be back trying to win the title in Melbourne uh, this week as well. In fact, 
They also won the tournament at Queen's on four occasions, and there is a, an interesting interview that you can see on the uh, the Aegon Championships website uh, of them in a, a Jaguar courtesy car driving to the tennis, and, and some of the questions they get posed by the iPad that is in the car really amuse me. They tell you what, they, what they'd do if they were invisible for a day, uh, and one of them I know wants to go into the White House and basically see if Barack Obama's doing any work. And uh, they also tell, tell us about their most embarrassing moment on a court and their thoughts on the British summer. Why that's a talking point, I don't know. Uh, on the subject of Queen's, the, uh, the Aegon Championships, the deadline is approaching if you want to enter the ticket ballot to get tickets to be on centre court. You need to be on the mailing list before midnight on Friday the 18th of January. So that's this coming Friday. Get on the Aegon Championships website, sign up for the mailing list, and then the week after, uh, the ballot itself will open on Monday, the 21st of January. You can get your name in the hat, and maybe you get some nice tickets for Queen's. But that's about it here from us on the Tennis Podcast for another week. We're ready for the Australian Open. I hope you are too, and we look forward to speaking to you soon. We'll have lots of updates throughout the first week. We might try and do an, a couple more extra additional podcasts just to keep you up to date with what's happening out here uh maybe after the first round we'll we'll put a little one out there and uh and keep you keep you posted but we'll certainly be back next week and we look forward to speaking to you soon Well, here we go. The year's first Grand Slam tournament about to begin. Don't forget to tune in to BBC Radio if you're in the UK. We'll be bringing you coverage around the clock and special edition updates here as well will be coming your way during the Australian Open from us right here on the Tennis Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.